Our gracious God in heaven, we thank You for this Lord's Day. We thank You for this day that is set apart for the specific purpose of worshiping You and resting in Christ. And so we thank You for this opportunity that we can come together, have this brief time of study, that we can look deeper and gain understanding, that we might glorify You. And we pray also that this would be a time of preparation as we, right after this class, assemble in worship. And so may the truths that we learn here translate into worship as we gather together right after this class. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so on your handout, and I did this a little different too, you may not like this, you may like this, you be sure and let me know if you like or dislike, uh, but I did fill in the blank. Who's done a fill in the blank for years? So, you know, I mean, you just, as a teacher, you're always looking for things to keep the student engaged, so if I am insulting your intelligence, I apologize in advance, that was not the intent, uh, but I thought it would be fun uh, to look at this and... Um, and, and help us stay engaged. My goal is to get through all of these today, but uh, as you know, oftentimes my eyes are bigger than my stomach, so we'll see how this goes. Uh, so we're going to start with the catechism, and then what I'm going to do is break it down into points and then the supporting scripture that goes with these points uh, so uh, hopefully this will, uh, as it's laid out logically, hopefully you'll follow along, track along uh, as we're studying this. So question number 37 in the larger catechism begins with this question. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Answer. Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking Himself a true body, and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her, yet without sin. All right, so you can see that the way that they have structured that answer, it's dealing with a number of different theological uh, doctrines here. And so the first then one that I want to begin with is the Son of God became a man with a human body. With a human body. <clears throat> John chapter 1. Verse 14, and the Word, John there is using the term uh, metaphorically, the word me uh, metaphorically here to refer to Jesus, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And of course, we could look at other scriptures as well, uh, of course, the nativity scenes and so forth and so on. But, but the main thing that we wanted to start with is, is that the Son of God became a man with a human body. You students of church history, why would this be an important thing to emphasize doctrinally in our larger catechism or in our confession and shorter for that matter as well? Not everybody at once. Yeah. Chris? 
That's exactly right. Yes, yeah, so within the early church, we, we, we had, and, 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 and many scholars believe that this is probably what the Apostle John is referring to uh, in his letters, uh, cert, uh, likely 1 John. And uh, so this idea that Jesus did not have a true body, uh, that he was not truly man, because the idea was is that spiritual is good, that which is of the human substance is bad. And so the idea was we've got to separate these two. And in order to separate these two, Jesus could not have a human body because that would have been bad and therefore would have, have convoluted who He was as the Son of God. But Scripture does not teach that. Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus was born, that He was born of Mary. He was physically a man and had a human body. Number two, and equally as important, Christ possessed a human soul. A human soul and therefore could experience sorrow. He was capable of sorrow. Think with me about Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, when Jesus said, My soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And we, we know that Jesus wept. We know that Jesus felt the anguish of this human condition, and that is, as Jesus said, my soul. That is part of the human being. We are both body and soul, and so his soul, as a human being, experienced this sorrow. Thirdly, Christ was born of the... You all got this right, right? Of the Virgin Mary. And I always, this is just the, the I guess, grammar nerd. I, <laughs> I've always wondered why we either, in the case of, of Roman Catholics, and in some cases in our literature, they'll capitalize the V. And then I've always wondered, Susan, why not a comma? Small v, comma. The Virgin, comma, Mary. Um, but in our translations, we don't do that, and they didn't ask my opinion on the translation committee. But that has nothing to do with what we're studying today. Uh, the, the Christ was born of the Virgin. Her name was Mary. And it says in <clears throat> Luke chapter 1, which we're going to hear from quite a bit in the coming weeks, right? As we move into this Advent and Christmas season, it says a Virgin... to a, to be born to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel goes on to tell the, the Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Mary said, What? It's not how it works. Maybe different for angels. Maybe in heaven things are a little different. She didn't say any of that, of course. But she said, how can this be? Because I'm, I'm a virgin. It's biologically impossible. Of course, the angel could have said, yeah, that's exactly right. That's how this is going to work. But he explains to her the practical side of it. And he says that the Holy Spirit will come upon her, right? And she, uh, the Holy Spirit says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
It's not a metaphor. Literally, Jesus was born of this Mary, and she held him, carried him in her womb, literally, even though she had not ever been with a man. And that's why, in, in, and again, I'm going to touch on this. I was telling Denise just a minute ago, I'm going to touch on this uh, in greater depth in the sermon today. Um, I'm preaching from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, but in Galatians chapter 4, this is why Paul makes the emphasis, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. The emphasis there is... Babies don't come from women alone. But Paul's making this emphasis in teaching the importance of the sinlessness of Christ that He would be born of a woman. Fourth, Christ was and is without sin. Christ was and is without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, Jesus experienced the human condition fully as we are human beings, but He did it and never sinned. He did not have a sin nature, nor did He sin in thought, word, or deed. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So if you'll look with me back to Catechism number 37 and the answer, when it says that Christ, the Son of God, became a man, of course we understand that to be literally a man, and in that he took upon himself a true body. He took upon himself a reasonable soul. Incidentally, what does their use of the word reasonable here mean? It means the idea of knowledge, experience, human capacity, having that reason within the human being, human experience being conceived by the holy of the holy by the power of the holy ghost in the womb of the virgin mary of her substance the word substance meaning that he was truly a little boy he was truly a baby in her womb and born of her yet without sin all right so before we move on to, to, to larger catechism number 39, does anybody have any questions on 37? I know this is pretty basic. Okay, so I'm skipping larger catechism number 38, and the reason I am is because in the logical flow of the larger catechism, they then turn to God, Jesus as God. And so I'm moving past that because, not because it's incredibly important, but because our focus today is on the humanity of Christ. So I'm moving past that, but you can read uh, question 38 and answer later. Question 39, why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? 
Now, the, the previous question says, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? Uh, so you can see sort of why they're structuring the question here the way that they are. But essentially, the mediator is Christ, right? The mediator between God and man. And why was it necessary? Why was it required that Christ should be a man? Listen to this answer. This is really solid. It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. Now, I love, I love the way that they just wind in right there at the end the fact that Christ is our mediator. It is through Him that we go to God and even touching there on prayer, right? Uh, but let's look at these. And again, I know that there's some language in here that may not be quite as straightforward, but hopefully the points that I've got for you below are. Number one, Christ took not the nature of of angels, but of humans. Not of angels, so there's your fill in the blank. Not of angels, but of humans. And you say, well, where's that in the larger catechism? Well, it's, it's not, but it's in the proof text. Um, and in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16, it says, For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. And so it is those who are in the covenant line of Abraham. And we could even take this on to our doctrine of predestination and election, so forth and so on. We don't have time to. But in general, we're th- the, the reference here could be clearly tied into Romans chapter 4. The offspring of Abraham are all who look to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, and that are then uh, covenant children of God. The point being is that it is us, not the heavenly beings, that He has come to help. Number two, the mediator must be man in order that he might be under the law. Under the law, and by law there, of course, uh, we're referring to God's Law. Now, I read to you Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 just a minute ago, emphasizing the point of born of woman. Now, let's think about Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, in relation to this reference of under the law. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. It was necessary that Jesus be born a Jew. Think about that. Because that is to whom God had given His law. That is to whom God had entrusted the Holy Scriptures. That is to whom God had given His requirements in writing. Jesus was born a Jew. Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. Jesus was born in that moment in time precisely as God had defined it and had appointed it to happen. And so... He was born under the law. Now, 
pause here for just a second because what follows is implications based on that. But, but in addition to that, and, and in terms of the law, why was it necessary for Jesus to be born under the law? That's right. And? He had to fulfill the law. So if you think about it this way, and this is, this is really the brilliance of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Christ came and in His life, He perfectly fulfilled the law, obeying it in every sense that God required. But so also, according to the law, a sacrifice was required. A sacrifice to atone for the sins of God's people. And so Christ not only fulfilled the law in His obedience, or we would say in uh, His, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? The opposite uh, uh, of passive. Um, it, good grief. Yeah, active. That's not the word that they use. I'm, I'm, but anyway, so he actively fulfilled the law in his living obedience, but so also, and the, and, and the word's not coming to me, so don't quote me on this, but his, his passive obedience, so also upon the cross. And so in both of these senses, in his obedience, both his life and his death, both of those were in complete fulfillment of the law. Because the law requires the sacrifice. Christ was the sacrifice. The law requires that we obey it in every sense. Christ fulfilled that in every sense, so forth and so on. So, now, what follows in these points I've got for you is what I've just said is implied here, right? So look at number three. The mediator must be man in order that he might suffer and make intercession for us in our nature. That He might suffer <clears throat> and make intercession for us in our nature. Hebrews, I've got two, well, I've got them on your handout. Hebrews 2, chapter 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death. Who is that? The devil, Hebrews says. And Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 and 25 says, But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so... The, the idea here is that Christ suffered in, in His obedience, and His obedience upon the cross, and continues in fulfillment of the law serving as the high priest on our behalf. And so He intercedes for us before God, before a holy God. Number four, the mediator must be a man in order that he might experience a fellow feeling, quoting that from the larger catechism, by the way, a fellow feeling of our infirmities. Of our infirmities. 
mediator must be a man in order that he might experience a fellow feeling of our infirmities. In other words, um, he had to be a man that he might know what this life is like. Right? That's in, session, in essence what they're, they're, they're saying here. And that's what Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And the weaknesses there is our human condition. It's not just talking about, well, our character flaws or so forth and so on. Now, our weakness is that we are born sinners. We do not know one nanosecond of existence apart from being sinners. We are born sinners, and therefore Christ is able to sympathize with us, not in the sense that He has taken upon us our our sinfulness, but that He was born a human like us, and therefore is like us in every respect. Was Jesus tempted as, as you and I are tempted? Yep. Did Jesus experience the human condition of sorrow and weeping and anguish and despair and jubilation and laughter? And did He experience all of that just like we do? Yes. Did He ever sin in any of those situations? No, He did not. And so He's able to sympathize with us, though not being sinful like us is the point. Number five. The mediator must be man in order that we might receive the adoption of sons. The adoption of sons. Jesus is the rightful Son of God, the eternal begotten Son of the Father, as we say in our Nicene Creed. And He is the rightful heir. But... By virtue of His salvific work, we have been adopted as children. We have been brought into the family of God by virtue of His mediation. Galatians 4, 5 says, "...to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons." Christ fulfilled what we could not do that we might become adopted children of God. And of course, it's not in, in our study today, but we, we know the, the, the carry forward of that is so also joint heirs with Him. It's not like we're second-class citizens. God is so gracious and so loving to us, He has bestowed upon us also to be joint heirs with Christ of the eternal kingdom. Number six... The mediator must be man in order that we might have access to the throne of grace. The throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the expression throne of grace is, an, is a, a metaphor referring to the authority, the power, the holy seat upon which God seats. It is a position of supremacy. It is a position of uh, total authority over all things and yet... It is not a throne of which we may not approach. It is the throne of grace because God has bestowed His grace upon us in Christ. And so it is only in Christ that we are able to approach God. It is only in Christ that we're able to pray to God, right? 
But God, Christ intercedes for us, and so as our mediator, we are to approach this holy of holies, if you will, of which God is seated. All right, moving on to question 40. Any questions on 39? Let's see if we're going to make it. Not looking good. All right, but we're, we're going we're gonna to charge ahead uh, because you're good students. And uh, so question number 40. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? It was requisite that the mediator, who was to reconcile God and man, should himself be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. Now, we're, we're going to... The, the, the following question is also going to dive a little bit deeper here, but here's the main points that I want you to take away from this. Number one is that the mediator is both God and man in one person. God and man in one person. And for those of you <clears throat> who are familiar with the historic creeds, uh, you will know that the Athanasian Creed, uh, and if, you've not, if you're not familiar with that, I encourage you to look it up today. The Athanasian Creed uh, goes into emphasizing this almost through the entire creed. Um, it's quite long. I mean, on a printed page, I'd, I'd imagine it's probably two or three pages. It is, it's quite lengthy, uh, but, but no joke. I, I would imagine that, that three-fourths of that uh, creed emphasizes this very point over and over and, and over again. And, and the reason for that is while it may not seem, uh, it may be a foregone conclusion for us, um, it continued to be something that the enemy uh, sought to try to attack in the early church and to make Jesus something other than fully God and fully man. And, and if you think about this, before we read the Scripture verse, if you think about this, it does make sense that Satan would want to erode that doctrine. And incidentally, it's not just in the early church, right? I mean, we have denominations in our own city right now who do not believe that Jesus was the very God. They believe He was a good man. They believe that He taught good things. He may have been divinely inspired, but they don't believe that He is equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And so uh, this is not anything that, that we leave parked back in history, but the doctrine of uh, the uh, divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, and as we look at that, is especially important, not only because that's what the Bible teaches, although it does teach that, but also because, as we see here, it is required that Jesus be both. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 and 23, "...she will bear a son, and you, will call, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the, the point being is that God is with us, 
in Christ, in one person. Number two, the works of each of the mediator's two natures are accepted by God for us at the works as the works of the whole person. The two natures, fully God and fully man. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It was clear from God the Father that He had sent His Son, as He declared. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross was accepted by God because He was fully man, therefore our sins being imputed to Him as a man, but so also God that He might undergo the wrath of God, atoning not simply for one, but for all His elect, all who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he had to be both God and man, which he is, and so also carried forward the redemptive work as such. Number three, the mediator and his work as a whole are relied upon by us for our salvation. For our salvation. 1 Peter chapter 2. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And so, as we said, Christ, being fully God and fully man, so also satisfied precisely what was necessary for our salvation. Question 41. Why was our mediator called Jesus? Now, I'll pause here, especially since I'm running out of time, because I find this question in the larger catechism so fascinating. I'm like, what? I mean, that, could, could that not have been parked over in the shorter catechism? That, that seems a little silly. Why did they name him Jesus? That's essentially what they're asking. Uh, but it's important, and it's important because it is emphasized in Scripture. The answer here is, our mediator was called Jesus because he saveth his people from their sins. And so the, the main takeaway here is that the divine command was to name the child of Mary Jesus because of the meaning of that name. Because of the meaning of that name. It's not just any name but the name carried this significance of Jesus. And again, I know sometimes we'll encounter uh, in this part of the country, or maybe you've encountered it, I have, uh, where you'll, you'll, you'll hear people, uh, part of, there's this sort of this, this uh, I don't even know what you call it, this Hebrew roots movement, movement, and you'll run into them sometimes, and they're like, he was not Jesus, he was Yeshua. And um, to which I typically like to respond, at what point do we draw the line on pronouncing Hebrew names? Because I can give you a whole laundry list of how you pronounce it. Um, the point is not 
how you pronounce the name. Because in, in Greek, it, I could counter back and say, well, our New Testament is written in Greek, and technically it's Yesu. So let's do away with Yeshua. Let's just go with Yesu. Everybody okay with that? Okay, not okay with that. But in English, the translation is Jesus. It's perfectly fine to pronounce His name uh, Jesus, or if you speak Spanish, Jesus. But I don't speak Spanish, so I call Him Jesus. The point is, I'm trying to be funny, and you're not laughing. So I've, I've, either, I've either offended you, or I've lost my sense of humor. Um, but uh, the point is not how you pronounce His name. The point is what? What it means. What His name, name means, and His name means that God saves. That God saves us. Uh, that He saves His people from, his, from their sins. Number 42. Why was our mediator called Christ? As you see where they're working here, right? So, Yesu Christos in the Greek. Why was he called Jesus? The name means that God saves. Why was he called Christ? Answer, our mediator was called Christ. Pause there for just a second, for just kicks and giggles. Um, what is the, the English translation of the Hebrew equivalent to Christ? Messiah. That's right, because some people will, will sort of miss that. They'll say, well, He was the Messiah. And when, when, whenever we are seeing Jesus' name, in, in, again in the Greek, Yesu, meaning God saves, and Christos, Christ, the point is, is those two are, are pulled together. As I jokingly tell my kids, it's not His first and last name. It's His given name and His title of Messiah in Greek, Christos, in English, Christ, our mediator was called Christ because He was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king of His church in the estate both of His humiliation and exaltation. This is good. That's actually where I wanted to get us today on prophet, priest, and king. So good, good deal. All right, so point number one, the Holy Spirit was given to our Savior above measure. Above measure. What, what does that mean? What, what's the, 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 the theological idea that they're trying, or that they're not trying, that they are conveying there? So the, the distinction here above, above measure is that, that God, the Holy Spirit, was bestowed upon Him in a way, in a measure, so to speak, greater than anyone else. Why? Because He is the very Son of God. And so the Holy Spirit rests upon Him differently. His anointing is different. His measure is uh, as they use the term here, is differently. Again, John 3, verse 34, For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And so it rests upon Christ supremely, for he is indeed the second person of the Godhead. Number two, our Savior was given the Holy Spirit above more than his fellows. We're sticking with the previous question terminology. Um, you could use another word there if you want, um, brothers, uh, friends, uh, others, but 
fellows. Uh, Psalm uh, 45 says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We understand Psalm 45 to be a Christological psalm looking to uh, the Christ, to the the Messiah. But again, the idea here is that uh, Christ is anointed differently uh, and given the fullness thereof uh, above measure. Number three. Our Savior was sealed by God the Father, that is, set apart for His redemptive work. His redemptive work. And it's interesting, and perhaps you've run into this in a Bible study before, is that sometimes people will take uh, the, essentially, why Jesus came statements. You know, I have come, I have come, I have come. And, and it's a fascinating study although it can be misleading at times, because Jesus says that He has come, and He says a number of different things. And, and, and some will read that, and they're like, well, why, why did, he, did He come? Did he, was He confused? Did He not have His priorities straight? And, but when you look at those statements, the essential theme, every time Jesus says that, is redemption. It is His redemptive work. John chapter 6, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. God sealed Christ with His Holy Spirit for the purposes, uh, for the purposes of His redemptive work, which was the reason why He came. Number four. Our Savior was furnished by God the Father with all authority and ability, with all authority and ability to carry out His appointed work to the end. I'm out of time, so I'm just going to point you to Matthew chapter 28. It's the Great Commission, right? So, you know, all authority has been given to me, so forth and so on. Um, So you'll want to look at that later. And number five, our Savior was raised up by God to be a prophet. See where this is going, right? A prophet. A high, what prophet? A high priest. I think that's the next one, isn't it? Yep. A prophet, a high priest, and a king. That's where we're going to pick up next week. We're going to pick up next week uh, with this prophet, priest, and king emphasizing Christ, what what we refer to theologically as His humiliation. I think the last fill in the blank is humiliation and exaltation. Yes? Well, I suppose it could in the sense that he, he, He is the second person of the Trinity. Therefore, He would... Uh, be anointed by the Holy Spirit as the third person. So I, I think it probably could. Yeah. All right. Let me pray for us and we'll close. Our gracious God in heaven, uh, we do not take lightly the truths of Scripture. Uh, we do not take lightly the truth that your word teaches us that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit that He was fully God and fully man. 
that He might fully obey your law, fulfilling it in every way, that He might die an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that He might resurrect from the dead, conquering both sin and death, conquering the dominion of Satan over us and giving us life, eternal life in Him. And so we thank You for these truths. We pray now that what we have studied today, we would take it, carry it over, that it would translate into true and heartfelt worship of You, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.